Well, thanks again for being here at Grace. I hope you're enjoying our service. We're diving in uh, to this series we started last week called Parables, Simple Story, Profound Truth. But before I get there, I just want to remind you of, of something that's coming up in a couple of weeks, and that is uh, the Heartbeat Hope Medical Run Walk for Life. And I want you to put that on your radar. That's May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, that day. Uh, is an opportunity for you. It's at Connor Park right here, convenient for us to either walk or to run, to raise money for a Heartbeat Hope Medical, and they could use our help. This is a ministry that we feel very connected to, and we want to make sure that they succeed. And so whether you walk or, or register to run, um, or if you can't do any of those, try to find somebody that you can sponsor as they do that and that would help them a lot. And like I say, that's uh, a ministry that we really do want to help. We're in our series. We're looking at a, a series of parables starting this morning, uh, not so much last week, that really mark a transition in Jesus' ministry. We're going to start in Matthew 13. If you want to start turning there uh, in a, a Bible on the chair rack in front of you or maybe turn on your device, Matthew 13. But let me just set a little bit of the context for you. This is in the middle of Jesus' ministry. And really about this chapter in Matthew marks a turning point in his ministry. Before this time, early in his ministry, Jesus, most of his teaching was in synagogues, local synagogues and uh, that would uh, house a, a few people, but nothing like the multitudes that started following him. And then this marks a transition where he started teaching more outdoors to allow for the larger crowds that were following him. And then the other thing that sort of shifts in this point in his ministry is Jesus starts using more and more parables. He's used a parable or two before this, but now he tells a lot more parables to illustrate his teaching. And so those two things, Matthew 13, Mark, we, we see a shift in both of those those changes. And the thing about a parable is a parable, really, the word means in Greek, alongside. And that's where somebody tells a story to put it alongside a truth that they are trying to illustrate. And so it's a simple story with a profound truth. It'll be a story that people would be familiar with and could relate to just in everyday life, but it was meant to enhance or illustrate a spiritual truth that might not be so obvious. So that's kind of what's happening with parables. And as we open up here, we're, we're going to find that Jesus, Jesus is asked a couple things, and, and that's what our, we're structuring this talk around. But before we get there, think about it. We're going to start Matthew 13, 3. He's near the sea, which, which is the Sea of Galilee. He has been in a house and interacted with some people. He leaves the house. He comes down to the shore of this sea, the beach, and there's a lot of people around. Of course, some of his disciples are fishermen, and, and they know how to handle a boat. Jesus gets in this boat. They row a little ways from the shore, and then that creates a little bit of a natural amphitheater where when Jesus talks, more people on the bank, and of course the bank always would rise, more people could see him. And then in those days, the teacher sat and, the, and everybody else stood. 
We flopped that today, so I thought today for the next hour, no, no I'm just kidding, but uh, you know, so that got changed around a little bit, and so if you could just picture it, and now Jesus' ministry is gaining more steam. The disciples, they're getting pumped, crowds are following. You can start to feel that because there's a town nearby, people have probably invited other people to come and hear Jesus. I mean, this is becoming a big deal as he made his way from the house to the shore. That probably attracted people. People are hearing more and more about him. That caused more people to say, hey, hey, Joe, close the shop today. Well, I never close the shop. Well, Jesus is talking. You got to hear this guy. And so Joe closes the shop like he's never done before, comes down and makes this happen. So that's the scene. That's what's happening as we pick it up here in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, and then here's, the, here's this parable we're looking at, behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and birds came and ate them up. Others fell on rocky places where they didn't have much soil and immediately sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And then Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. Now, I don't know how you're thinking that might be going through the disciples, but they're probably involved in, hey, you got to check out Jesus. Come on, more and more people from the town, crowds around. Some of them have probably never heard Jesus talk before. Everybody's pumped. The disciples, we find out later, are probably in the boat with Jesus. They row out. The stage is set. The amphitheater is ready. Everything's a go. And then Jesus starts talking about agriculture, you know, farmer advice, which, by the way, every farmer would already know. And then at the end of that, he says, he who has ears, let him hear. Talk over. And you know, people are on, on, the, on the soil, and even the disciples are like, whoa, that's not what I would have invited Joe to hear. You know, I'm not sure that he got anything out of that. And so that's what's happening. And that causes the disciples then to ask Jesus a couple of questions. One's recorded by Matthew. The other question's recorded by Luke, but we're going to handle them both because he answers them both in this text. They say two questions. Jesus, first of all, why parables? Why the stories? I, I mean, people aren't getting it. This is not work, not, not, not your best talk. Why are we using stories? And then secondly, what does this story mean anyway? All right, so two, questions, two good questions that we could ask. We're used to it. Why this, why that? And the other interesting thing is, at this time in history, people knew about parables as teaching, but most people did not use parables. It's kind of rare to use parables as a teaching method. Really, it's Jesus that, that really promoted that more than anybody else. And although he's told a couple, now he starts doing it a lot. And so, hey, that begs the question. Uh, think about it. No, in the whole New Testament, 
No parable is ever ascribed to anybody else but Jesus. I mean, Paul teaches, you know, we have Peter teaching, and all this stuff's happening. Nobody else tells a parable, just Jesus. And so their first question, why parables? Why, why are we doing this? And here's how he answers, continuing now in verse 10. And the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. First of all, before we start getting to what that means, um, right there, all of us who are believers in this room, which is not everybody, but if you're a believer, a follower of Christ, right there, we can stop right there and we can thank God. Because we understand that there are millions of people who don't really have a desire to know God and don't understand what God's saying, but God, as a gift, have given it for some of us to understand. And that's basically what he's saying here. So we could just stop right there and, and just thank God because by God's grace, we get this. And Jesus continues now, verse 12. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And right away, that's kind of violating our sense of fairness, right? Okay, the guy has a lot. He gets more. The guy didn't have anything. He didn't get anything. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, hey, those who receive truth and act upon it, they'll end up getting more truth. But those who hear truth but don't act on it, or they hear truth but they reject it, or they reject Jesus then even the truth they hear will be of no use in their life. And um, so for, now verse 13. Therefore, I speak to them in parables. He's given the why. Because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. Now, to us, that doesn't mean a lot, but what's happening there is he is now going to go into this quote of Isaiah, and, and we don't, he, because he's talking now to the disciples, who it seems like are in the boat with him, but again, it's a natural amphitheater, so he's addressing them, and we don't know how much of the crowd, maybe they're all hearing this, or maybe just the closest people, we don't know, but then Jesus brings up the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was well known as a prophet in the Old Testament in the Bible of the first century. They didn't have the New Testament, hadn't been written yet, but they had the Old Testament, and Isaiah was a key player in that Bible. So the disciples and everybody on the shore, especially if they were Jewish, they totally understood who Isaiah was. And Isaiah not only was a prophet that talked a lot about what was going to happen in the future and what about the Messiah and, and that he would come and what was going to happen, there's actually a famous passage in Isaiah that, that describes the throne of God. And the reason that's so interesting to everybody is in the Bible, nobody can actually see God and live in the, in a, as in God the Father. And so here Isaiah has a vision. It's in Isaiah chapter 6 where he actually is in the throne room of God. And it's a super majestic, transcendent kind of a scene. And now when Jesus mentions Isaiah, that's really the most, what probably most people would associate Isaiah with. 
And now Jesus is going to go on to quote Isaiah, but where he's quoting Isaiah is in that same chapter, Isaiah chapter 6, just after this scene of God in his temple, which that would have been in their minds, even though that's not in our minds. So what I want to do is read that to refresh some of our memory or, or just share that with some that haven't heard that. So, so here, they're all, Jesus says, well, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, and he's going to start quoting Isaiah, and that quote comes from chapter 6. But when he starts doing that, they're all thinking about this vision. So you get what I'm saying? Are you ready for it? So we don't have this on the screen, so follow along. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. They're covering themselves because they're in the glory of God. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. I mean, all of this just radiates the glory and transcendence of God. And then it continues. Next verse. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. That's a famous little portion of Scripture. Actually, churches a lot of times would have that. Who will go? Here I am. Send me. The problem with that is that's a great little quote if you stop reading right there. Unfortunately, the text in Isaiah continues, and then you take it down from the wall because then that's not so cool. So it goes like this in verse 9. And he said, Go. And tell this to people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And you're going, whoa, that sounds like just the opposite of what I would expect him to say, right? Don't, don't miss it. Do you see what God's saying? He's saying, okay, you want to go, Isaiah? Here's your ministry. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not hear. This is not good. He's saying, hey, Isaiah, go and tell this message, but when you do that, it's going to be like you're talking to a wall. Ever, ever try to communicate something important to somebody and they're texting on their phone? 
Like you got this important piece of information. Hey, I got oh, something. Oh, I got to tell you about this. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, go ahead and tell me. And you're like, no, this is really important. They're like, yeah, okay, go ahead. I'm listening. And you're like, but you're not really catching this. And like, what'd you say? You know, it's, it's that. That's what God is telling Isaiah it's going to be like. You're going to tell them, and they're not going to listen to you. That's why it's not such a great quote to put on a church wall, because that's what's happening here. Nobody wants this ministry. He's saying, Isaiah, tell them to keep on seeing, but do not understand. This, this is not what you want in your ministry job description, right? Hey, could, could you imagine the ad on, on churchstaffing.com? You know, hey, yeah, we need a minister. You know, hey, pastor must make hearts dull. Must get the word they don't understand. Make sure they do not get it. Those seeking a fulfilling, fruitful ministry need not apply. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. And so Isaiah asks God in his vision, well, how long, Lord? And basically God says, until judgment comes. I mean, that's what's going to happen. There's only going to be a remnant left is what he's talking about. Well, back to Jesus. Okay, so that's in everybody's mind. He mentions Isaiah. And now, boom, back to Jesus in the boat with the people at the beach. In their case, verse 14, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. And they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. That's the quote from Isaiah. And this, this brings up a lot of questions. Wow, this, this does not sound friendly. This does not sound like something Jesus would say, right? He's basically, yeah, we're, we're going to preach, and they're not going to get it. Why am I telling parables? Because these people aren't going to get it, and they should, you know, don't want them to get it. It's kind of how it sounds. He's, he's explaining why parables. And it brings up an issue which some people debate a lot about today. I mean, there's like an endless debate. If you're into debates, you get into this and it never ends. And it's, but it's the debate of something, a doctrine, a truth in the Bible called election and, the, and another truth in the Bible called human responsibility. And that basically just means this. Election means... We find out from God's Word that when we become a believer, that God has chosen us all along, that even before the foundations of the world, and, and so it's like, oh, God all, had this all planned out. And so, for example, the disciples, why do they get all this? Why, why, why do they get to sit in the boat with Jesus while this is happening? Because Jesus called them. Remember, he went to each one of them and said, hey, follow me, and they followed him. On the flip side of this, though, and, and so that's there, what we call election. And the Bible clear, clearly teaches that. You can see that in Ephesians and some other place. But on the other side of that coin, you, you still have human responsibility, meaning we are all responsible for how we receive or react to God's truth. And that, that's another truth in Scripture that God has told us, hey, you're responsible for your actions, whether you choose me or not. And, and it, what's interesting is, so we have a big problem with this. Hold on, are we chosen, or is it our responsibility to figure it out? Or has God already predetermined that, or where are we at? And you know what? The Bible authors, they're totally good with that. Live in the tension. 
Because you can argue this forever. The point is, paradoxically, both of those are true. And so that's, that's what's happening. That, and Jesus is speaking to both in, when he answers these people. He's saying, hey, you know, some people are never going to get it, but they're never going to get it because they don't want to get it. And so that's the interplay. Um, what's happening, which is happening today, happened in Jesus' day, happened in Isaiah's day, is that we are responsible to hear God. And so when the people of Isaiah's day turned against God, that, w- that's, that was the judgment on them because they turned. And then the people of Jesus' day that didn't get the parables, you know, and all that stuff, well, that was their fault because they, they would not, didn't want to understand. And it's the same way with people in our day. Some people just don't want to know. So even though we'll never fully understand that balance, and, and by the way, we'll get back to this, but I don't want to get on this rabbit trail because this rabbit trail could take years. But, there, you know, even though we'll never understand the balance of God's sovereignty, election, and human responsibility or choice this side of heaven, the authors of Scripture were totally okay with living in the tension, and so should we. Now, the Word of God's always effective. It brings enlightenment or judgment, depending on how you respond. If you align yourself against God, it makes sense that you're not going to really understand what, the, what Jesus, the Son of God, is explaining to you through a parable. That Jesus continues. Back to Jesus. That's off of theology. Back to Jesus. You with me? Some people are saying, thank you. All right, verse 16. But Jesus says, but blessed are your eyes, talking to the disciples now, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He's talking about the Old Testament people like Isaiah. They, would have, they were waiting for the Messiah for hundreds of years, waiting, 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 waiting to see what he'd say, waiting to see what he would do, hear what he said. And, and they didn't get that, but the disciples get that. And they understood it because they accepted Jesus as the Messiah who would bring the kingdom. And because of that, they were under, able to understand a lot more of Jesus' teaching in that context. So why parables? That's the question they asked, right? Parables were used to make truth plain by explaining it, but they were also used to veil truth to people who rejected Jesus, to people who didn't want to understand. Parables are also used to make people think. You see, rather than just saying something, a parable forces you to commit a little bit more. You have to think about what does, okay, I get this story. I've seen that a hundred times. How does this apply to spiritual things? You have to commit a little bit. You have to invest a little bit in order to understand. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's important to think through spiritual truth, and parables force you to do that. That brings us then, okay, if that's the why, then the next question is, the disciples are going, exactly what does this farmer story actually mean? Break it down for us, Jesus. They don't understand it. We're not sure we get it either. This one, help us out. And basically, Jesus is teaching that the same one message can produce different results in people by the way they hear. 
The same message produces different results in the hearers. He's basically saying, Jesus is saying in all this, be careful how you hear. And then he goes through these soils. So, verse 18, here's Jesus' answer to their question what this means. He's already answered why parables. Now, what does it mean? Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty some 30. So Jesus gives the explanation of what this parable means. He says, first of all, the seed is the word. The seed is the message of the kingdom. The seed is what we would say the good news, the gospel. The seed is this life-altering, hard-for-humans-to-understand message that salvation is a total gift through faith that God made happen at great cost by sending his son Jesus to actually pay the penalty for our sins. Because of our freedom of choice that God's given us, so we, we aren't robots following him, we're not forced to follow him, which is not love. God, he gives us this choice, but because of that, we've all failed at following him. We've all done what God says is wrong. We've all violated God's standard, every single one of us. But God then took matters in his own hand to make a way for us to be won back. He, he paid the price to win us back, but we have to do that through faith. So Jesus came as the Messiah. More than that, as people soon realize, actually the Son of God, he had no sin of his own, but he died in order to pay for our sins if we accept him through faith. So that's the message. That's the seed that Jesus is talking about. Now, when people hear that message, they respond in different ways, and the different ways people hear is illustrated for us in these four different types of soil. So the first one is a hardened listener, and, and that's illustrated by the seed. It just falls on a, a beat-down path, so it has no place to go into the soil. It, it's just like concrete. People have been walking there for generations, maybe for hundreds, even thousands of years in Israel, same path, and that's not going anywhere, and, and birds come and, and pick it off, and it's not getting in the soil. It doesn't grow. can't germinate. So that's the, the hardened listener. And, and some people, probably people that you know, they can hear the gospel over and over and over, and it just never seems to impact them. It never seems to penetrate. It never seems to go anywhere. Um, and, and I think a lot of that's just they don't want to believe. A friend of mine, Dave Melson, who comes to Grace here, 
He was in first hour, so I can talk about him now. He's not in here, but he stopped by the office, and, we, and I was kind of passing through, and then we stopped there at the entryway, and we were talking a little bit. And, and Dave, like me, we love sharing the good news, talking about Jesus with people who don't know Jesus, and he does this all the time. And so he was asking me, well, you know, I'm talking to this guy, and, uh, you know, I, I, he, so, and a lot of times when you talk about Jesus, people will bring up, they'll push back, which is fine. You know, people push out, back a little bit. A lot of times they'll ask some, some tough questions, sometimes some well-thought-out good questions. And, and it's a joy to answer those questions. But a lot of times what Dave was talking about is he says, you know, this guy asked me a question, and I start explaining the answer, and before I, and, and as soon as the guy gets I have an answer, before he even hears the whole answer, oh, well, well I, and I have another question. He has another question. That happened to anybody? That happens to me all the time. They ask a well-thought-out question. Well, here's a problem I see with Christianity. You know, maybe it's a problem of evil. Maybe it's other religions or whatever. Well, what about this? But as soon as they see that you're prepared to give an answer, they don't really want the answer. They want you to see that, well, here's their, to justify them not believing. You know, so you'll start, well, the reason that's happening, the Bible would tell us, is that, well, well, well what about this other question? Well, what about this then? And what's happening is, you know, they don't want to hear. So Dave was asking, what do you do with a guy like that? So I told Dave, well, here's what I do sometimes if I think it's going to be that way, which, which can save you a lot of time, is, is I'll say that. They'll ask a tough question. I'll say, that's a great question. And then I'll say this to them. If I answer that question, will it help you believe? If I answer that question, well, and some people, they'll just look at you and be like, because hmm, they don't want to believe. They want to justify their unbelief. So once in a while, that, you know, I'm happy to answer that question. But if I do, will it kind of solve that? Not that you won't have any other questions, but will, you, will that get you one step closer to believing? But other people, they just don't want to hear what you have to say. As soon as they know you have an answer, they don't really want to hear it because they're convinced there can't be an answer. You see what I'm talking about? It's just like sometimes... Be, oh, yo, you're a Christian. Oh, you're a Christian? Well, I got a question for you. And they'll say, you know, maybe they'll ask you about um, gay rights or the, the, what, whatever it is. They'll just ask something that they're going to be offended. They're pretty sure they're going to be offended by your answer. And then sometimes when I know that's, it's being set up that way, that's when I'll say something like, okay, well, before I can answer that question. I'm happy to do it. But before I answer, my question to you is one question. And they'll say, I'll, if, you, if you answer my question, I'll answer yours. I'll say, okay, who gets to decide? If there's right and wrong, and everybody believes in right or wrong, no matter what they say, then who gets to decide that? Me? You? The majority? Who gets to decide? It's the same kind of thing. Anyway, I'm on a rabbit trail. Bring it back. Bring it back. All right. And by the way, there are many here who ask loads of questions, loads of questions. There are people here that's probably asked hundreds of questions. I know one guy here, I bet he's asked me a thousand questions. I'm not kidding. But here's the difference. He was seeking an answer. He was seeking truth, not making excuses. We don't shy away. You got questions? We bring it. We love to answer questions. But listen to the answer. Don't just throw out things that you think is too hard for anybody and then to justify you feeling good about your rejection of Christ. 
But anyway, wow, I got to speed this up. So that was just, that's the hard places. That's the, the hardened listener. The next soil that Jesus talks about is shallow listening or superficial listening. And uh, this here, he talks about rocky places. And in our mind, it's a little deceptive in the English. In our mind, we think rocky places and we picture kind of a field and it's covered with rocks, you know, a bunch of little stones. Sometimes you'll see that on the first plowing, you know, about this time of year in fields and stuff. But that's not what he means. Rocky places, we can tell by the original language, really means it looks good, but just a few inches under the dirt, there's a layer of bedrock. And so what happens, there's enough soil for the seed to germinate, and maybe even quicker because it's warmer. But then it springs up, but it can't have any depth of root, and so it dies. Actually, that's illustrated every year at my house. It, behind my house, we have a, a, a septic tank that's been set. And I, I remember when I, because we were there when we built the house, when we built it, I remember thinking, man, I've got to remember where this thing is. Someday there could be a problem. I've got to know where this thing is. How, how am I going to remember that? I need to stake this out, but I want to mow. So, you know, how am I going to do that? Well, it turns out every summer it's clearly outlined by the dead grass, you know, that's right on top of that because there's no depth that doesn't hold, the roots can't go down deeper and it doesn't hold the moisture, so I've got a, a square, a rectangle of dead grass as soon as everything heats up. So no problem there. That's what Jesus is talking about. It springs up. But then when the sun comes out, it scorches it, and it dies. And people like that, a lot of times what happens, because they don't have no depth of root, is people will come in, they'll come to a place like this, and and maybe this applies to you, and, and you'll hear the word, and it sounds good. And, and you'll, you'll you know, accept it, you'll go with it, and you'll, you'll keep coming, you'll be excited about it. And, and, and as long as everything goes well, you're okay. But as soon as trouble comes, hey, I'm out. Because built in, because you didn't really hear, you started thinking, hey, okay, well, here I am. And hey, I've adjust, you know, all these other people live this certain way. I'm going to adjust a few things in my life. And then, hey, my life is a little better now. Wow, that was great. And you start viewing God as a life enhancer rather than a new life in Christ. And then embedded in that, because of our human nature, is the thought, hey, I'm coming to church, I've changed a few things for God, and without even stating it, you start developing this feeling that God owes you. God owes you a certain kind of life. And then when trouble hits, or there's a crisis, or an illness, or whatever comes, all of a sudden, that's offensive because you know God can control that. So you're like, hey, I'm out of here. Did not sign up for this. And it's like people follow God thinking that they've promised, him a, promised them a comfortable life. And let me just tell you, God has not promised us a comfortable life. What God has promised us is no matter what trial we go through, God will see us through. He'll be there every step of the way. 
But as a Christian, Scripture's telling us, oh, you're a follower of Christ? Expect to be uncomfortable. That's what God's telling us. So superficial hearers start joyful, but they lack depth for the trouble that'll come, and it will come. And if you're not in trouble now, just give it a year or two. You know, you're going to hit trouble. Everybody does. The third soil is distracted listening. Uh, the third sort are people who are preoccupied with worries and wealth, Jesus says, but to put that in our language, making a living, you know, trying to provide for your family or preoccupied with that, general, just general busyness. And all of a sudden, the Christian life has all this competition from other issues in your life, competition from other concerns. And, and we see this all the time. People come to grace. I can think of a family now. Come to grace and, and, and seem to be all in. And then they're MIA for maybe a few months, two, three months. They're MIA, maybe a season, maybe a summer. And then they're back. And then you're like, you know, hey, where you been? What, what's going on? And they'll say, you know, and a lot of times they'll put, put it on the kids. Well, you know, we're in, and then they'll name, you know, sports or music, or dance, or, you know, there's all these things that kids are involved in, and, and I get that. We all get that. And then they're out, and they're, so they're in and out. Now, some people can do that and still really try, try to stay connected and keep trying to get the word. And, and I know when I say this, there's like about, in here, maybe 10 people going, you're talking about me, because I just said something to you about this like three, in the last three weeks. No, I'm not. I hear that all the time. Or maybe I am talking about you, but I'm not thinking about you while I'm talking, you know, whatever. But anyway, you know, because it just happens all the time. And, and then my, my concern, and, and, you know, hopefully you got this covered, but here's what I'm always thinking when I hear that. You know, first of all, you know, great, your, your kid seems to be great, good. But beyond that, deeper I'm thinking, you know, in 10 or 15 years, it's not going to matter that your kid was in this sport or that sport or this instrument or, you know, whatever, this music thing or that dance recital or, you know, whatever. It's not, what's going to matter in 10 or 15 years is do they know God? That's everything. You lose that. You lose it all. And that's, you know, that's what we have to insure against. That's how we're going to end up with regrets, not not their level of expertise and some, some skill. And so, you know, that, that kind of thing can happen. You just have to know that and, and, and figure that out because the parable really is, he's talking about all these soils, and each one shows a little more promise. You know, this one didn't even get started, didn't even germinate, boom, gone. This one germinated, but pff, gone. This one grew but got choked out and didn't produce any. And basically he's saying, all three of these soils, these are not descriptive of Christians. And, and I think the one that really hits people is this choked out one because, you know, we all have hobbies and all this stuff, what I was just talking about, and kids' stuff and everything. You know, and we're like, wow, man, you know. This is not descriptive of believers, so that's what we have to really pay attention to. They show promise, but none produce fruit. None are any use to the farmer in the parable until the fourth soil. And this is the good soil, and, when, and that produces fruit, which signifies genuine Christianity. Fruit only comes 
when we truly not just hear the message, but we understand the message. And this is the person who hears it, understands it, and then acts on it. And when they act on it, it changes their lives. I've been a pastor now for 27, going to be 28 years this fall. Never thought I would be a pastor, like when I was a teenager. Probably the last thing I thought I would ever be would be a pastor. But I got to tell you that the number one thing about being a pastor is seeing lives change, hands down. Seeing God change people's hearts. As a pastor, and you guys get to do this too sometimes, but as a pastor, you get to do it more. I get to talk to people before they're believers, even if they have hundreds of questions or whatever, and it's okay, I love it. And then a lot of those people become believers. And then I still get to interact with them because they're at church. We'll still maybe have some follow-up meetings. So I get to see them and get to know them before Christ. And then I get to engage with them and know them and sometimes grow in how I know them after they become believers. And you see this change in their life. That blows me away. That pumps me up. It expands my heart. I just love that. This person is completely different, and everybody around them knows it. They might not all think it's going to stick. They might think, well, yeah, this is just a phase. You know, it'll probably last a year. Yeah, we get that. But I see it, and it's genuine. Time will tell. But I am pumped, pumped up. That's what we get to do. And that's many of you that I get to see. How God has rocked your world, changed you from the inside out. It's the best thing about being a pastor. So where does that leave us? What Jesus is teaching us here in these soils, he's saying, be careful how you hear. We could be in the hearing of, of God's truth, and it can just bounce off of us. You know, we might, we, we might come just because somebody expects us to come. Maybe our spouse wants us to come. And we'll keep the peace, and so we'll hang out here. And, and, and my concern for you is that you're being inoculated against the gospel. You've heard it so many times that it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't mean anything to you. It's like you don't even hear it anymore. Or, or maybe you're more like the person, you know, who, who comes and boom, at first, wow, this is great. I'm excited. I'm pumped. I, I've changed. I've adjusted a few things like everybody else has here. And, and it's, it's cool. But then when something hits you, something comes into your life that you don't want, you're just like, wow, God, how can you let that happen? Hold it. It's okay to have questions. It's okay, okay to ask God some tough questions. It's okay to say, God, why? But there's always the why not. You can, you can vent to God. He can handle it. Some people, they're out. And then this whole life. I'm not just picking on parents of certain kids. All of us have this. We're busy people. And on top of that, 
because we're kind of rich, all of us, by the world standard, then we, have, then we have hobbies on top of it that take time. Everything takes time. And a lot of times, there's so much time taken in people's lives, they have no time for God. There's only so much that fit, only so much that can fit into one life. And you've got you to make choices about that or you're going to find yourself distanced from God. Then the fourth soil, that it's growing in your life, producing fruit. Now, he's saying, God, Jesus is telling us here, the acid test of genuine Christianity is fruit. Is it showing up in your life? Is it changing you, changing your behaviors? And, and really, one way to break that down is there's like external fruit and internal fruits, things you do on the outside, things that happen on the inside. The outside things, the fruit, and probably what Jesus is mainly talking about here is, is reaching other people, connecting with people, making disciples. You know, are you doing that? Are you involved in that? Are you, are you trying to share your faith or inviting people where they're going to hear the gospel? You know, are you, are you involved? Are you wanting to point people to God? Are you wanting to impact people for Him, not for you, not to make a new friend, Make a new friend to influence them for Christ. That's fruit. And then the more internal fruit, and I think that's primarily what Jesus was talking about, but there's internal fruit. That's the fruit of the Spirit, right, that the Bible talks about? That's, that's, I get to see both in people all the time. People who weren't believers became believers, and then I see them doing, you know, they're, they want to be involved. It's a, it's a mystery that God would even involve us in impacting people's lives for an eternity, but He does. And then the internal fruit is that fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. When you see all this showing up in their life, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. I mean, you see all this bubbling up and you're just like, wow, that was not there when I first met you. God has rocked your world. He's changed your heart. And, and I know everybody around you can see it. Even if they don't like it, even, even if they're just waiting for, for you to go move on to something else. And so that's what we got to figure out. Be careful how we hear are we sinking our roots deep? Are we listening carefully to what God has for us in our life? Are we continuing to grow? Are we producing fruit? Because every Christian does, produces that fruit. And that's what pumps me up because I get to see that in so many of you. Let's stand for prayer. Father God in heaven, there's a, a bunch of us here, and, uh, and maybe every single soil is represented in this room. And Father, some of us are believers, and some here are not believers, at least yet. And Father, our first prayer is for those standing here among us, those of us who are not believers, Lord, that they would see your truth that they would trust you and your son, that they would be able to see themselves accurately the way you describe us. 
so they can respond to your message. Father, we pray that you would impact their heart, that your spirit would touch their hearts, that you would draw them to yourself so that they can see and be impacted forever, forever, like, like many of us have experienced. And God, for those of us who are believers, and we could look back and see fruit in our life, internal and external. And Father, we want to grow. You've called us to be a part of building your kingdom, the kingdom you're building, that we get to be players in that. God, thank you for that. It's, it's freaky. It's, it's overwhelming. It's amazing. Thank you for giving us such an important role in what you're doing in history and what you're doing right now. Lord, and we thank you most of all for Jesus that makes that possible. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.